And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy, Richard Dizanek. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And for the first time this week, uh, this is a first time situation on Categorically Oscars, we're going to be talking about the best makeup category or best makeup and hairstyling as it's now known. Because the hairstylists, you know, really got shafted uh, until a couple of years ago. But um, we're going to be talking about the best makeup uh, category of 1989, uh, which is a year we've discussed before on the podcast. We did uh, Best Original Screenplay 1989, way back in the very beginning. Um, this was your choice. What? Why did you choose this particular category and year? Um, well, a couple of reasons. The first was I wanted us to cross the last feature film category off the list um, because I think this is I guess I should say live action feature film category off the list um, because this is the only one we'd never done before and then looking at the nominees and winners in the category um, I realized well it's probably going to be a three film category because it has been only three films until just recently um, and I really didn't feel like watching some of the movies from the five nominee era. Maybe that'll change this year. Um, but yeah, not not such a great lineup, I feel, in the past few years. But anyway, um, and this one also gave me a chance to cross off a Best Picture winner that I'd been neglecting, um, along with several others from the 80s that I kind of crossed off in, in one go. But this one in particular was... Uh, on the list of best picture winners I hadn't seen, so I wanted to uh, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Yeah, and we'll see if you liked Driving Miss Daisy later. <laughs> but yeah, um, mm-hmm. so the nominees this year were The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, makeup artists Maggie Weston and Fabrizio Sforza, uh, Dad, makeup artists Dick Smith, Ken Diaz, and Greg Nelson. And the winner, Driving Miss Daisy, makeup artists Manilo Rochetti, Lynn Barber, and Kevin Haney. So we begin with uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, um, mm-hmm. which in the run-up to, to the film being released, I think there was a lot of chat about this, a lot of negative press um, about the film's sort of ballooning budget. began with a budget of $23 million dollars, but the final cost ended up being closer to double that. Uh, lots of talk about director Terry Gilligan being unreasonable and excessive, and it ended up being a box office disaster, like a lot of these um, films with negative press are, like Heaven's Gate, etc. Um, but the reviews were kind, and the film managed four craft Oscar nominations. What did you think of this strange film? Um, well, I think like, um, like most of Gilliam's work, it's kind of a, a magnificent mess. Mm. Um, his, his directorial style always seems to be just kind of throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks, kind of doing things on the fly, um, being kind of fast and loose with plot you know, kind of usually becomes secondary in a lot of his films to the kind of antics that he just wants to film and and get across. And I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that he went over budget. Like, he always goes over budget, right? He he runs long, his films get shelved, he runs out of money, his, his actors die, and it's just everything that can go wrong for him usually does. And I think it probably stems a lot from him. Um, mm, yeah. And just his, you know, just kind of his wild 
approach to filmmaking. But as with most of his films, I did enjoy this movie. Um, it's kind of weird and slapstick and very imaginative. I don't think it's as successful as the other two films in the so-called trilogy of imagination, uh, Time Bandits in Brazil, I think are much more, uh, are much better realized films. Um, but I, I still enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, the movie is like all over the place. And for the, you know, first 40, 45 minutes, I was kind of dumbfounded at its, you know, complete lack of focus. Um, it's just far too long. It drags badly at times. But the longer it went on, the more I kind of came to appreciate its brand of humour, which is very in keeping with Gilliam. And, you know, like you said, the, the throwing things out there and hoping they're successful, which is how I kind of feel about the Monty Python work, where some of the Python sketches I think are hysterical. And then others I'm just left wondering, you know, what were they going for? Um, are you a Monty Python fan? Yes, uh, quite a massive one, actually. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Um, they have their their very, very well-known skits, uh, the fa- kind of famous ones. But then when you when you watch like all of the TV series, all 45 episodes of Monty Python's Flying Circus, uh, there's definitely... I mean, there's some hidden gems in there for sure, some lesser-known classics that should be as well-known as, like, the Parrot Sketch and the Lumberjack Song and all the rest. Um, but there is a lot of that kind of, like, hey, let's just try this and, and see if it works. And usually you can appreciate it, I think, even if you don't find it particularly funny. The one I remember is the fish. <laughs> the fish-slapping dance? Yeah. Oh, that one's, that's great. Yeah, no, that's good. No, that's good. But there's things like that that's great, like that nobody would think of. And then there's other things that just go like a lead balloon for me. So it, to me, it's very hit and miss. But I think you write in terms of this movie, the plot takes, you know, a, a backburn. Uh, it's on the backburner. Because the approach to storytelling, you know, it's largely that the plot is propelled along by something crazy happening, something physical happening that's crazy. And there often isn't a great deal of explanation as to why we've suddenly gone from outside a castle to up on the moon. You know, it's difficult. You have to pay attention to every little detail. Like, I feel like watching it again and again, you'd probably learn a lot each time because there is so much going on. Um, I did like Robin Williams' role uh, as the King of the Moon. I think that was one of the highlights because you can clearly see he's like improvising as he often did and just, you know, doing what he wants. Was he supposed to be Russian? Um, I thought I I thought he was going more for like kind of madcap Italian because he he doesn't uh, doesn't he call himself like Re di Tutto or something kind of a pun <laughs> on on the Italian for King of Everything. So I, I, I thought his accent, he was going for kind of broad Italian, um, but with a with a touch of madness. <laughs> There's some great lines that he comes out with. He says something like, um, I don't have time for accidents and orgasms. Like, just random things. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like, like, well, it fits in with the movie because the movie's just insane. Um but it was also a delight to see Oliver Reed, mm-hmm. as, you know, this this role, jealous um, lover kind of role. Um, but I think apparently he spent a lot of the shoot drinking and trying to seduce Uma Thurman. Um, <laughs> so maybe that was method. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, that's also par for the course for him, right? Just heavy drinking and antics, right? <laughs> Yeah. But no, I I liked him a lot in it too and he really like as always just goes all out with it. Um it's amazing to see him in comedic movies because he always plays his roles it seems very straight. So he always comes across as a terrifying presence even in kind of a madcap comedy or a or a 
G-rated children's movie. <laughs> I'll never forget that one, that TV show he did with all the, the women talking about feminism. And he just... I, just, I don't think I saw that. <laughs> oh, it's the biggest car crash you'll ever see. He's just, you know, off his face, falls over, and <laughs> it's just like such a chauvinist uh, prick. It's it's just it's car crash TV. I don't know how they let things like that happen, but that this was back in the seventies, so it was like anything goes in terms of drinking and live television and stuff. But um, <laughs> I mean, a big thing with with this particular movie though is is Sarah Polly's role in it. Sarah Polly is the the child actress playing Sally Salt, and it's weird that we're doing this movie, you know so soon after she's written this article because uh, I didn't know about this article until I kind of researched for the episode but she, she wrote a very candid account um, of the the filmmaking process for the adventures of Baron Munchausen you know and uh, sort of detailed how she had to run through like this gauntlet of explosives um, and ended up in hospital a couple of times and mm-hmm. you know she was really traumatized uh, by this. So she, she published an article in The Guardian in which there's an email exchange between her and Terry Gilliam where she explains to him her experience and he basically just brushes it off. Have you seen this? Mm. No. Basically, he brushes it off and says, I don't, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. It was fine. And kind of made, makes her doubt herself. And then years later... She met a special effects worker on the film. And the first thing he said to her was, I'm so sorry about what happened to you on that movie. And they sort of ended up re-watching it together as some sort of catharsis for her. So I, I found that really interesting because so, she's she's still not completely made peace with that. Um, and she's, you know, really pretty much directly calling Gilliam irresponsible. Um, but I mean, I can't imagine no, those kind of unsafe practices exist now, like for kids, maybe for adults. Like we had the, the whole Alec Baldwin thing a couple of years ago, but you would like to think that things were a bit safer for kids, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that's pretty recent to have put a child in a position like that like you know you you watch some of those old movies uh you know before safety was a big concern and when extras uh you know weren't really people um and the kind of shit they had to go through and deaths and injuries and everything and you kind of think we've left that behind um but then yeah to see to see a movie from only 30 odd years ago um where that happened is kind of shocking to me. And I wonder how much uh, maybe that still goes on um, with, I mean, cause it's, it's hard for kids to do a role like that. I would think even with proper safety methods in place, um, it would be hard to have like practical effects like that going on. So I don't know. Um, I hope it's better, but mm. Yeah, because I think, I mean, she was eight years old and like this account, it's a really long article and worth reading for anyone listening to the episode. Um, and, you know, there's there's like a, numerous times where she's like, you know, like nearly drowns or like, <laughs> like um, it's like being taken away in the ambulance and crying to her dad and saying, I can't do another take. And yet, you know, the dad's like, no, you've got to do it again. <laughs> so you know but this is i mean any i mean any kind of parent who puts their child in for that kind of thing is probably kind of on the pushy end of things i would think um yeah yeah but the the effects themselves are good um even though they nearly killed sarah polly um and because it got nominated for visual effects which um they're not spectacular but for 1989 they're probably pretty good. What do you think about the fact it got four craft nominations overall? Are they deserved? Um, well, 
I won't I won't say about makeup yet because it'll give away ranking. Um, but art direction, I it it's kind of just a bizarre mishmash. It doesn't seem to be a whole lot of um, coherence to it. I think, um, and by extension of that, I like the the costumes are fun, right? Um, Baron Munchausen's costume is great. Robin Williams and the Queen of the Moon, they're great. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I think the costume design not as, is well-earned. Uh, visual effects, I guess. I mean, the the most kind of virtuoso sequence in that regard is, again, the the King and Queen of the Moon with their runaway heads um which is legitimately entertaining and imaginative i loved that part um you know not just for robin williams's performance um so i i don't know i I don't know if i would have given it a visual effects nomination or an art direction nomination probably would for costume design though yeah i mean i think the cinematography which wasn't nominated is like pretty dreadful yes uh, partic- particularly from a lighting perspective it just looked really shoddy and cheap which considering the budget is pretty unforgivable really yeah uh, but to get onto the makeup how did we feel um well i think of the three it has the most makeup um and the most hairstyling slash wigs um and I did think that it was interesting the kind of subtle uh changes to Baron Munchausen's face, how he kind of de-aged as he was going on his adventures, and then when, when he hit a roadblock or when they had a low point he would look older again. And so but not like, you know, instantly regaining his youth or like the cover like the poster shows a very young man for some reason. Uh, and he never gets that young. So I, I thought that was pretty clever, the kind of um, subtle getting younger that he did, and that was down to the makeup. So I think they did a good job with him. Um, and everybody else also had makeup on, I'm assuming. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a Munchausen uh, showcase in terms of the makeup and hairstyling. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a sculpture of Baron Munchausen, um, and it's remarkably like John Neville. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so they did a good job in that sense. No, I think there's an awful lot of cosmetic work going into the movie. Uh, I don't think it's particularly polished, but you know the sheer quantity and effort that's gone into making everyone look part of this sort of 18th century German world. Uh, is you know commendable on some level. I think it's probably more impressive with its hairstyling for me and the wigs, um, than the makeup. But th- that's part of the category. So um, I thought it was good on the whole. Yeah, and interestingly, just an aside that um, the reason Sarah Polly contacted Terry Gilliam about uh, this in the first place was because he was doing Tideland at the time with. A child actress um so i think that kind of conjured up memories and that's why she wrote the letter but joe del furland is great in tideland um which is a really bizarre film um but it's not very good but it's got a great child performance in it hmm, i have not seen it okay next uh we move on to dad um mm-hmm. i think both of us uh sort of approaching the age that Ted Danson's character is in this movie. Um, Yeah, which is interesting because he, I mean, he looks older than us, like significantly older mm. than us. I think that's just because he was, he was never young, was he? Like, I mean, Cheers is the youngest he was, right? On screen. I think so, yeah. But he never looked particularly young. But does this mean we're the the right audience for this movie then? I hope not. No, um, <laughs> well, I guess not in the sense because even if we may be his age, we're not like divorced with a college age son. Uh, so 
We're not quite him. And not assholes, hopefully. And not assholes, no. It, I, I don't even... Shit. It, I don't even remember. Is he divorced? Or did his spouse die? Or what's the deal with that? I think it's divorced, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Full disclosure, everyone, it's been a while since I watched it before we recorded the episode, so I may forget tiny details like whether Ted Danson's wife is divorced or just dead. <laughs> but I think, I mean, this is, it's about a constant, you know, human issue that a lot of people have to face. The Savages did a pretty good job a few years ago with it, actually. Um, that was a pretty good movie. But Dad is... It's very cloy and it's very manipulative. And because of that, I, it can't really impact enough in that way for me. I think the script just needed more emotional, honest beats and less manipulative schematic devices to it. That was what was disappointing about it. There wasn't enough uh, honesty to it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of a... I mean, when I think of the kind of movies I used to watch when I was a kid, you know, the, the kind of movies we, the family would go to the video store and pick one out and like, oh, this looks okay. Like the kind of 80s and 90s movies like that. This is exactly the kind of movie we might have rented one time just because of like, oh, that's the guy from Cheers um, or something like that. It would have been like when I was a, in a, my teens before, I was like, oh, it's Jack Lemon," But when I was a kid, no, I wouldn't have. That wouldn't have had an impact. Um, so, yeah, it has that kind of fluffy late 80s, early 90s, cheesy kind of feel to it. It's hitting, like you say, all the right beats. It's manipulative in that way. And it just kind of moves you forward along this kind of assembly line plot um, without really, yeah, touching on an issue that, yeah, a lot of people go through, but not really adding to it in any significant way, I think. Yeah, and I think medically it's a little bit dubious. Like, I think a big problem with the movie is that it it doesn't seem to understand that senility, you know, is, is this degenerative disease. You know, in this movie it's brought about by shock, which is not particularly convincing. You know, I'm sure that shock can maybe accelerate dementia, but... Here it feels far too sudden and it doesn't seem as if the writers have investigated that enough, uh, researched that that side of it enough. Because Jack Lemon's character, Jake, he ends up in a coma and then he sort of wakes up and as if nothing's ever happened and it's just explained away by the fact that his brain stopped producing an enzyme and then it, you know, randomly started producing it again. So... I think obviously they didn't know as much about that at that time, um, about, you know, degenerative illnesses like this, but it feels as if the medical stuff is used as a triggering story beat rather than, as you know, an honest comment on old age and the deterioration that happens. It feels like it's it's just there to take us to the next stage of the plot. <laughs> Is it, is it, do they actually say schizophrenic? He's got, or is it some, is it a personality, split personality or something? I think they, well, I think back then they kind of used the two terms interchangeably a lot. But yeah, I, I do remember them using the word schizophrenia um, to describe, yeah, he, he has this split personality because Olympia Dukakis sucked all the joy out of his life. So he just invented a second one uh, where he's happy. <laughs> Uh, which is a pretty harsh judgment. I mean, I really, I know we're supposed to dislike Betty, uh, Olympia Dukakis's character, his wife, but I kind of felt bad for her. Um, like I, I mean, I didn't feel bad for her at the beginning because she was no, she was really kind of. I don't know. There wasn't much warmth coming from her, um, but I mean. When Jack Lemon's schizophrenic episode is revealed, you, I think that's when the film's kind of the best. It is, like, for me, like... Mm-hmm. And Jack Lemon's performance, I think, is definitely at its peak, you know, unsurprisingly, when he's doing comedy. 
Yeah. And yeah. The, the you know the period after he wakes up from this coma and he starts living life to the full, and we get all these colourful outfits and the beret comes out and he's doing push-ups <laughs> and he's singing, and <laughs> I just it, the, at that point the film had just gone completely silly, um, but. I kind of enjoyed that bit the most, and yeah, the film kind of became humorous and managed to also generate conflict in a bit of a more interesting way. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly in terms of Betty, I think that was you kind of understood more about maybe the history than you did from earlier on in the movie. Um, I didn't like her as a character because I thought you've got a perfectly lovely husband and you're miserable. Uh, she should have been grateful that he was out of the coma. Um, yeah. But but that part of the the movie was so left field compared to the rest of the rest of it. I don't know what was going on there. Maybe the the scriptwriter had a few whiskeys that night <laughs> or something. I don't know. Um, but very divorced from the rest of it. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, and but I found that part the most entertaining as well. But yeah, I mean, like I say, yeah, I didn't feel bad for Betty at first either. But yeah, when when he suddenly comes out of the coma and he's just completely manic. Um, yeah, on the one hand, he's living life to the fullest and he's being goofy and loving and she should, you know, we think, yeah, come on, loosen up, you know, go along for the ride. But from her point of view, her husband's just acting crazy. And she has no idea how to adjust. And everybody's just telling her, well, this is dad now, deal with it. And if I were in her position, I don't know that I wouldn't react much differently if my spouse suddenly started acting like that and everybody was treating me like I was an asshole for, you know, kind of just wanting my old life back. Yeah, and she's um, she's like, uh, she's like, I'm, and I'm not, uh, babysitting the neighbor's kids <laughs> and um, she won't learn Japanese and he's getting her out of bed like he's waking her up in the middle of the night for a quickie every night she's like it's every night <laughs> yeah maybe maybe it is a little bit like what the fuck's happened kind of thing yeah um, yeah very strange um, but I think for me the biggest problem with the movie was John is a total dickhead for me. He, you know, because when the the medical stuff happens, he tries to get the the, uh, the dad's doctor in trouble because the doctor does the right thing by telling him he has cancer. Like, how many movies do we bitch about from the past where the doctor doesn't tell the patient they've got an illness and the person's kept in the dark? So I didn't like how he did that. I didn't like that when he carried him out of the hospital, you know, of his own accord, the film seems to think it's like a really heroic moment. Um, And there's this momentous music playing in the background. And, you know, it's like really not at all. Like he's been totally rude. He's been totally unreasonable to the hospital staff who know what they're talking about. So he makes this series of errors for me. He tells his son... Um, he's in the way and go back to Mexico. So in terms of the investment in his character, I don't, you know, I don't think the film could really make up its mind whether there was supposed to be this journey, like this Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer style journey where somebody's an unfailing businessman and then they turn into a family man or whether it was just saying people are people and, you know, flaws and all. And, you know, difficult situations can you know, show the worst in people sometimes. I don't know. I just didn't feel it was consistent with what it was going for. Yeah. And I mean, that that second reading would be a good one, but I really don't think the film is that deep. And so it's probably just, probably just laziness um, and not being sure about how they want the character to come across. Because, yeah, I... I never really got a strong arc out of John either. He was always just kind of, uh, he, yeah, he, he, he didn't seem to change very much despite uh, the Wikipedia plot um, uh, 
the Wikipedia plot summary assuring me that he's a better man for the experience. Uh, oh, does um, it say that? I just don't know if that's true. It does say that, yeah. yeah. You have to wonder who writes these. I, do, I often do, yeah. Um, thoughts on Lemon not getting a nomination? He did get a, a Golden Globe Best Actor nomination. Um, did he deserve one? Competition? Because it is a baity role. Yeah. Um, I would say, looking at his competition, I think he could have gotten in there. Um, the only one of these performances I haven't seen is Tom Cruise and Born on the Fourth of July, so I can't speak to that. Um, but I, I would be happy to see him edge out Morgan Freeman. Um, Robin Williams. Even Robin, yeah, Robin Williams as well. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Henry V, but I remember Kenneth Branagh being a pretty good Henry V in that one, so maybe not him. Uh, but Freeman and Williams, yeah, they could they could go. I, I'd put Lemon in there in place of either of them. Yeah, I'd definitely put him in place of Williams. Not sure about Freeman. Um, but, you know, there's a couple of performances that other performances got left out, like James Spader, um, Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. But, yeah, maybe Lemon was ahead of those. And could have gotten in here because he was he is so beloved by the Academy, you know, um, and he'd been nominated for missing a few years before. So, what about the makeup then? Well, um, they took uh, a sixty-four-year-old and made him look seventy. Uh, wow! <laughs> and uh, Olympia Dukakis was like in her what early 50s and they made her look 60 maybe so yeah wow um real transformation there um i don't understand this nomination at all uh yeah they made jack lemon look older and i did i mean but and it was realistic because the my first instinct was to check how old he was at the time because I was like oh man he aged real badly but it turned out no he didn't uh he just uh took off some of his hair and uh gave him some more wrinkles yeah it is literally just make him look a decade older than he is um which is just not a huge task honestly and you know aside from that you know that's really the only element of the makeup and hair that you can actually see is, you know, an achievement of some sense. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an underwhelming nomination. Surely this has um, just managed to get in the category, given the other two movies and how many nominations they got. But Yeah, and it's weird. I mean, I maybe it's because the, of the pedigree of the people who worked on it, because, like... For example, Dick Smith had worked on The Godfather, The Exorcist, uh, Scanners, Death Becomes Her. Um, he'd won the award for Amadeus a few years before this, so maybe he was just kind of still riding that high, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we've. it's difficult to, t- to talk about the... Because every branch is different, isn't it? Um, yeah. And we can see from some of the movies they left out, which we're going to talk about later you know, how the branches work in a lot of branches do go by the big names and leave out um, people who are not that experienced. But yeah, it's not great work, this. So um, the two movies we've discussed so far lost this Oscar to the Best Picture winner of this year, Driving Miss Daisy. 1989's Best Picture, um, a film with four wins and nine nominations, which feels incredibly generous, I think. Um, But on the plus point, at least that bloody score wasn't nominated. Jesus. Yeah, that was was rough. Well, the whole thing was rough, uh, let's be honest. Um, And it's... (laughs) It is interesting uh, to see this being won by the best picture winner because it doesn't happen a lot 
Um, no. I, I mean, did Titanic win? N- no, it wasn't nominated. Um, I mean, if it no, it was nominated. Sorry, it was, but it was one of the few that it lost. Um, I think Men in Black won in '97. Oh yeah, but well, fair enough. Yeah, because um, yeah, I was looking at the rest of the category, and sometimes the best picture gets nominated, but it's pretty rare. Um, and I don't think it's happened since Lord of the Rings that uh, best picture winner won for best makeup. So yeah, but anyway. Um, well, I'm not sure it was. I'm not sure Driving Miss Daisy was expected to win. Um, to win this or Best Picture? Best Picture. I don't think so. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. This was your first time watching it, wasn't it? So was it exactly what you'd expect, or? Pretty much, yeah. Um, after years of reading about it and hearing about it. Uh, I kind of, yeah, I got it, got what I expected. Um, it was, yeah, I don't know. I, I, for a best picture winner, I don't find myself with a lot to say about it. Um, it feels very of its time, um, in terms of its production values and just the way it's put together. Um, and there's a lot annoying about it and a lot that kind of makes made me just kind of wince. Um, nothing that I would cite as particularly egregiously bad, um, but nothing that would elevate it for me to like a best picture winner, especially in a year like this that had better alternatives. I mean, this is probably... You know, one of the first Best Picture winners I saw because my grandmother had it on VHS tape. Um, it's certainly, it's definitely an old person's movie. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the prop dramatically it's weak. I think especially in the first half, not much happens for a while. There's like this succession of scenes towards the beginning, which are all the same. And they're all in a row where Morgan Freeman walks into the frame and tries to strike up a conversation with Daisy and just gets rebuked every time. And, you know, it keeps happening. And I was thinking, you know, all right, we get it. (laughs) We get it. She's stubborn. She's a bit ignorant. She doesn't want him in her life. Okay. Two of the scenes would have been fine. Instead, we got about five or six. Um, And the film kept telling us this over and over. Um, I wasn't comfortable either with the fact that you know, the film does attempt to show Hawke's social progression. Like in terms of the, the second-hand cars and things like that. But I kept thinking, you know, what about the fact that he's working for a family that's made its money from the cotton industry, which notoriously used the slave trade. So, you know, at least until the end of the Civil War, but you know, in a state like Georgia, who knows? Um, how long that lasted so that did kind of sour things a bit you know every time the film attempted to show that Hulk was you know building a life for himself and prospering despite the um, the drawbacks you know of the time um, it, it just kept for me it was undercut by the fact that this is you know a family that's made its money from slavery yeah yeah, they kind of brush that aside, don't they? But I mean, the, the the whole film just kind of maintains a surface level uh, investigation of any of these major issues. I mean, it, it tries to touch a bit on anti-Semitism, but again, it's just kind of there and gone again. It's just like, oh, we're in this traffic jam. It turns out your synagogue was bombed. Well, let's just go home. Um, and that's it. It never comes up again. It doesn't become a major plot point. Um, and then there's the scene where they get where they stop on the road um, in the deep south, and and the cops are kind of racist towards both of them. But again, it's just kind of there, and they don't really uh, investigate or, or really interrogate that much. Instead, it's just kind of this progression, is like you say, these kind of. Um, repetitive scenes uh, 
they both get older, their relationship really stays roughly the same. She uh, is mean to him, and he just laughs it off, and they continue. And it just develops into a friendship, because that's what the script says, but they really don't change their dynamic all that much. Um, at least as far as I could tell. No. No. I, th- I think the one thing I did like about the race element is that I think it showed that there can be a disconnect between recognizing that racism is wrong and yet maybe being prejudiced and discriminatory, you know, in in everyday life without recognizing it. You know, I think Mm -hmm. because Daisy, Daisy has this Martin Luther King admiration, um, which is so randomly comes in the movie, by the way, but yeah, she still treats Hawk extremely badly in terms of how she deals with that situation, and she disregards him quite terribly, actually. So I liked how it showed that there's a disconnect there with that. But the film misses huge, huge opportunities. It would have been nice to have seen Hawk's wife and kids. You know, you find out that he's got a granddaughter that's driving him about when he gets older, and it's like, well, why isn't she in the film? It, that just felt like a big opportunity to get an African-American perspective on Miss Daisy and the family as a whole. Like maybe the granddaughter could have been even been, you know, civil rights activist, something like that, that was critical of the family. You know, there were ways where it could have, the, the film could have put an interesting spin on it and it just didn't make enough of an effort generally to broaden the scope of you know, what we're seeing, which is essentially just a woman learning to become less racist. Yeah, exactly. And the the granddaughter not only could have provided perspective on the family, but also on her grandfather, you know, taking on this role and making it kind of his life's work. um, When, you know, I, I think, I mean, we don't learn much about Hoke, but even in the limited glimpses we get into his life beyond miss daisy's chauffeur it's clear that he could be doing something else um especially once he once he learns to read and write that could that should have opened up some opportunities for him yeah most unexpected death scene <laughs> yeah it it film history <laughs> yeah um idella just <laughs> maybe uh I I don't know. Um, did Esther Roll's contract just run out at that exact moment in the middle of the scene, and she was like, "I'm I'm done, going home." And yeah, um, and I can see why the film didn't get an editing nomination because what was with the scene? Like, <laughs> I I I I remember it so clearly because it was so weirdly edited. He come he goes out of the kitchen for some reason. She's shucking the peas. And then she stops, and then he comes back in and, and calls her name. That We cut to the peas just dumping all over the floor. She just dropped them, slow motion peas rolling everywhere. It cuts back to Hoke, exact same tone, says her name again. Like, she wasn't even in the room, like he's wondering where she is and didn't just see her keel over dead. It was like... What a ridiculous scene. What a ridiculous reaction to a death right in front of you. And yeah, so I think maybe that scene alone cost the film an editing nomination. Yeah, that that was... I, I mean, I'd seen it before, but I still didn't remember that that was going to happen. Oh, wait, no, it was... Sorry, sorry. It was nominated for editing. Well, there you go. What am I talking about? Of course it was. Okay, so it cost it the win. Let's put it that way. No. <sighs> That's not a great edited film, so it wasn't going to win anyway, but still, how ridiculous. <laughs> um, what did you think about the whole passage of time situation? Because it, it jumps forward a lot, right? Yeah, and I'm not really sure why. I mean, I, I, I'm, okay, I know why. It's like to show Hoke and, and Miss Daisy becoming closer and eventually becoming friends, which I guess couldn't possibly have happened in less than 30 years. Um, but I don't really get why. 
the film has to take place over that long a time span. Yeah, because it does pretty much end up going to the 80s in the end. I think it's supposed to be present day. Um, but, you know, when you've got... Because one scene, it's Christmas 1953. And then in the next scene, Booley's going to see My Fair Lady, which debuted on Broadway in 1956. So yeah. it, it does... I feel like maybe it would have been better if they'd had... If they'd only jumped forward a few times and just put the year on the screen sometimes simplicity is best with this you know um rather than say oh we're in the 60s now are we you know when we eight minutes ago we were in the 50s you know so it it did feel a little bit um unstructured in that way but let's get to the meat of the issue why did this win best picture you got me. I mean, I know that we can, you know, we can talk about it more when we talk about the overall observations, but just it's a pretty weak best picture lineup in a year that had some really great movies in it. Um, like we we talked about uh Sex Lies and Videotape and Do the Right Thing in our original screenplay episode. Um, and those absolutely should have been nominated for best picture over this and over dead poet society um and like i said i haven't seen born on the fourth of july so i can't speak to it um field field of dreams is great but that may be nostalgia and my just kind of inborn american love of baseball that makes me think that it's a good best picture nominee but i like it um so and i i like my left foot too i mean daniel day lewis is so good in it so i'd keep those but i don't know why this one i can't i can't imagine why this one i mean you do have to feel sorry for poor spike lee like he gets you know do the right things nominated not even nominated and driving miss daisy wins and then black Klansman's nominated and green book wins in the same mm-hmm. year so it's sort of like he's he must be like what's going on um <laughs> but do we i'm gonna i'm gonna be devil's advocate here do we need the driving the driving miss daisies and the green books of this world do we need those movies to to dumb these issues down to a a, a less liberal audience uh well i mean clearly it hasn't worked i mean we we had <laughs> We had Driving Miss Daisy 30 years ago, and we still needed Green Book, so what? what's it going to be in 30 years from now? Uh, the kind of <laughs> dumbed-down, uh, racism-for-dummies kind of movie that's going to win Best Picture in 2050. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know. I mean, sometimes the most inoffensive movie wins. I think if it was... Uh, preferential it would have won as well probably you know it would have even had a better chance in preferential maybe it was you know maybe it didn't win by much but i guess we're not talking about the best picture um specifically but it won best actress for jessica tandy Mm. that's not a i mean i think she's good you know i can't say she's not good i like her on the whole but you know, given some of the other performances nominated in that category, that feels like maybe it's um, definitely a career prize. And, a, you know, we liked your film and you've had a great career. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's not a bad performance, but not particularly noteworthy either. So, yeah, definitely a career nod. And then winning for screenplay also is weird. Um, again, it's a very, it's very by the book. It moves the plot along. Uh, it's competently written, but I mean, even the screenplay for field of dreams, I think is better than this. And it's not known for its screenplay. And of course my left foot has a good screenplay as well. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that in terms of best actress, this is the first time we're doing the makeup, uh, category so we've not really had a chance to address this but there is a sort of a link between best actress and best makeup um particularly recently there's sort of this definite correlation 
there's been 13 nominations and seven wins for Best Actress nominated films. And in all but two of those years, there were three or less nominees in the makeup category. And still there's been 13 nominations and seven wins for Best Actress nominated movies, which in a category with such short history is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, yeah. So how about the makeup? Uh, they all age. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, they get jowlier and grey-haireder and... Yeah, I mean, well, Hoke and Daisy are already fairly old when the movie starts. Like, I thought they were fairly old, but then they're still alive 30 years later. <laughs> Um, so they go through kind of the least, I guess, in terms of transformation. Of course, Dan Aykroyd's character goes from, what, mid-30s to mid-60s, so I guess his makeup is the most, has the most of an arc. It's very realistic, (laughs) uh, makeup and hairstyling. I, I believed that they were getting older, so in that sense it was good. How did Dan Aykroyd get nominated, by the way, as well? Isn't no that idea. Just a terrible nomination. I know what what is going on. Yeah, I think the makeup's pretty good for what it is, but you know, again, we've got the fact where it's aging makeup, and most of it is on Jessica Tandy, who was already eighty. So it wouldn't have been that difficult to make her look, you know, ninety. So I think she must supposed to be at the end, because um, she's got regular makeup on in the early scenes to make her look younger. Which, you know, is not exactly, you know, difficult. So basically they just then take that away. So, but it's fine. It's fine. I believed they were getting old. I agree. Um, Morgan Freeman, I don't think he was that old in this. You know, you, I think he just looked older. What was he, late 40s in this? Because um, he's only... Um... Yeah, I think, or early 50s. He might have been just 50. Born 1937, so what's that? 52. So, yeah, yeah, just 50. Um, So, yeah, he did, yeah. But he's not, I don't think he's a difficult person to make look older either. Um, But, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Not not great, but, yeah. It's not a particularly great lineup for makeup, I don't think. Uh, okay, so we've got some listener questions this week. First one's from Zeta. Uh, she asks, have you seen the Dead Poets in New York City video? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? And this does have a connection with Dad, right? Yeah, because it's the it's the kids, the teenage actors or the mid-20s actors, however old they were, the students, um, who play this uh the students in the film went to New York during a break in the filming to audition for dad, uh, the role of Jack Lemon's grandson in the film, or at least most of them did. And then this, this video that she's referring to, um, was basically a home movie they made of themselves on this little New York adventure going there for the audition. Um, did you watch it? I did watch it. Yeah, it was cute. I thought. Um, yeah, it was. It was cute. Interesting. Dad must have been filmed a long time uh, after Dead Poets, or at least a few months after, which is interesting. Um, I find it. I find it strange, and I do like Ethan Hawke, but I find it strange that Robert Sean Leonard didn't have a bigger career than Ethan Hawke. You know, especially having watched Dead Poets Society, he really does shine in that and he has such a magnetic quality about him. And Hawk, we didn't even mention Hawk in the dad review. It was okay. You know, it was fine. Um, but the video itself I thought was cute and I think it's nice that they didn't weren't too competitive about it. You know, they were kind of making jest of it really. So, yeah, I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fun little video, but, you know, just a bunch of bunch of lo- young lads, you know, fooling around in New York. It was fun. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed watching it, I think, more than Dead Poets Society. Yeah, me too. 
Um, and then we have a couple of questions that kind of uh, segue nicely into the snubs uh, portion of the podcast. Um, Andrew Carden asked, how did Batman miss? And Jeffrey Carr asked, if this category had five nominees that year, which two films do you think would have filled it out? Um, so that's a good, as good a segue as any to talk about snubs. I mean, Batman, definitely a snub, right? Well, it won Art Direction, so you'd think this would be an easy nomination for it to get. But again, every branch of the Academy is different. Maybe a little bit of snobbishness going on here in terms of comic book film. Um, but one of the, the makeup artists had been nominated before for Greystoke, so it's not as if they were complete newcomers. So I find that strange. I definitely think Batman will be top five. And also I would say maybe My Left Foot, which got the BAFTA nomination mm-hmm. for this. Yeah, I would say My Left Foot could have definitely been nominated. Um, also other movies that could have been in Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, yeah. Must have, I mean, probably should have been in here. Um, there's some really good, um, I think in some cases cartoonish aging makeup in there but of course that's part of the part of the movie um kind of part of the aesthetic yeah yeah biff's aging and stuff like that yeah that's fine yeah i would have i would have liked to have seen that in there um and then of course there was an indiana jones movie this year uh the last crusade which you know i think got a few nominations didn't it i think it got sound um yeah as well so that was also there and that had pretty good makeup in it some good uh you know good old-fashioned face melting and skin peeling kind of sequence so that could have been in there yeah and uh valmont which got nominated for costumes and has um it's like a period piece with lots of um big hair and stuff um <laughs> that 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 might have been in the running but yeah it very strange that batman not nominated there and of course, Henry V, somebody had to give Kenneth Branagh that bowl cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, okay, so we come to the immortal question. Why did Driving Miss Daisy win this Oscar? And was it close? Um, I, <laughs> I have to imagine it was because I think most people just voted at random. I like when they... And like when you're presented with these three, like how do you pick? Um, and I guess if it's kind of rising to the top in other categories, like rising to the top of Best Picture and Best Actress and everything, like yeah, sure, Driving Miss Daisy makeup. Um, I have to imagine it was close because nobody really deserved it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you can't get away from the fact that it's the Best Picture winner, although there isn't. You know, we have got Titanic losing to Men in Black, but Men in Black has way more obvious makeup, transformative-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think, it, you know, it takes place over a number of decades, which probably helps it as well, you know, because you can see a transformation in the characters. It's not like the Jack Lemmon's old and, you know, doesn't get older. He just stays old. Um, and, you know, there's no transformative... Uh, makeup in terms of Baron Munchausen either, so maybe it's the fact that there's there's transitions there helps it, um, or highlights the makeup a bit more. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't see it being a nail biter. Shudi Munchausen would be second. I can't imagine anybody voting Dad to win this, but you never know. Yeah, yeah, I would say. I think Munchausen won the um, the BAFTA. Okay, well, I got something anyway. Uh, okay, so wider observations on the 1989 film year. We've already spoken about Best Picture and the whole do the right thing uh, snub. Um, and I think Kim Basinger was very vocal about this, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Um, and of course, she wasn't the only one who was upset by it. But yeah, pretty ridiculous that... Um, and of course, we also have the anomaly that seems to actually be becoming more popular these years, but at the time, an anomaly 
of Driving Miss Daisy winning Best Picture when Bruce Beresford, the director, wasn't nominated, um, which hadn't happened in about uh, six decades at that point, or five decades, I should say. So that was big. Um, And again, the weird exclusion of Spike Lee from that category as well. Um, Just kind of an odd year for the Oscars all around. Like I said, um, a pretty weak Best Picture lineup on the whole. Um, Mm. I mean, even as much as I love Field of Dreams, I recognize that it isn't a... It's not an amazing film in, in the same way as Do the Right Thing or even When Harry Met Sally is. Um, so, yeah, kind of a weak lineup overall, kind of a weak year in terms of wins with a few exceptions. Like, I think Daniel Day-Lewis's Best Actor win is an all-timer. Um, and so there's a few good ones in there, but overall just it's baffling some of the 80s oscars choices are pretty baffling yeah i wasn't a huge fan of field of dreams when i watched it but that was a while ago um again and i am a baseball fan and i thought remember it being boring um Mm. but yeah you've got i mean the fact that beresford wasn't nominated the next time it happened was was ben affleck but i think then it's isn't it peter farrelly Yep. So there's another green book um, comparison <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, in terms of best director, it, was it an easy win for Oliver Stone? Do you think, or would that have been competitive? It didn't look that competitive. I mean, it's it's the only one I haven't seen, but the other films aren't like the direction isn't what stands out to me about any of the other four nominees. Um, so no, I can't imagine that that was a close one. Um, although he must have been surprised when he when it lost Best Picture. Yeah, yeah, I think that was that was the big shock. Um, but yeah, uh, Jessica Tandy remains the oldest Best Actress winner. Um, we've already talked about that, um, but the actual lineup is is pretty decent. Although I've not seen. Ajani's nomination for Camille Claudel. It's one I've yet to see, but Jessica Lang and Michelle Pfeiffer are really good and Pauline Collins is pretty good. So that's a that's a, a good lineup overall. Yep. And also uh the the best international feature film winner this year, Cinema Paradiso, is one of my favorites. Um so as usual, uh the international feature film category has a much higher quality overall than than most of the other categories in the lineup but yeah cinema paradiso wonderful film still have not seen that um we need to do another yeah. foreign one you soon must. i think another foreign lineup yeah i would love to yeah um I w- maybe this one and then you could cross that journey off your list <laughs> um wanted to mention brenda fricker won best supporting actress um this is technically about the Oscars after this, the year after, but I wanted to bring it up in case I forget when we eventually do 1990. But, you know, she has this quite hilarious story about when she came back to present the Best Supporting Actor Award the year after. And she saw Al Pacino looking really nervous and say, you know, I've lost seven times. Um, and apparently she had the envelope with her. She was going to the bathroom. <laughs> and she said to him, "Oh, don't worry. Your name, your name's in here. I've seen the movie. You'll get the Oscar." And he supposedly cheered up. <laughs> um, and then a few minutes later, she goes up and presents it and announces Joe Pesci's one. So <laughs> I don't know why she's telling him your name's in here. <laughs> I don't know if he took it literally, like she's actually like peaked or something. Yeah. Oh no. Well, at least he didn't have to wait too long uh, to get his Oscar eventually. But I don't know why, but that that sounds like something I could see Shelley Winters doing as well. <laughs> um, oh, that's that's cruel. Oh, <laughs> oh God. I to, I, now, now I want to watch the, the video of her presenting it to Joe Pesci and see if her... See if her face or her voice betrays any of her, oh, shit, sorry, Al. 
I think she said when she announced that she could see him sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, though. Who the hell's going to give it to Al Pacino and Dick Tracy above Joe Pesci, for God's sake? Yeah. Good. <laughs> that would have been a, a crime. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, should we rank these movies? <laughs> okay, yeah, let's do it. All right. Yeah, okay, so I'm at three. I have Dad. The makeup was barely there. You know, Jack Lemon was given a few more wrinkles and, you know, some white hair. Um, two, Driving Miss Daisy, I've got. Um, because I thought the makeup was good, but there wasn't loads of it. And it was sort of simple aging transformation. And number one, I've got Adventures of Baron Munchausen because because of how much was going on. And I think particularly with the wigs and, you know... It's not great and it's not particularly polished, but I think it's more inventive than the other two movies this year. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, exact same ranking um, for pretty much all the same reasons. Uh, even though if I was doing the Oscars myself, um, it would probably be three to five completely different films in the category. But uh, as it stands, those then my ranking matches yours. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. Please leave us a review on whichever app you listen to us on uh, if you liked this episode. Next week, we're going to be visiting 1974 uh, when we return to the Best Original Song category. And the nominees were I Feel Love from Benji, Blazing Saddles from Blazing Saddles, Wherever Love Takes Us from Gold, Little Prince from The Little Prince, and the winner, We May Never Love Like This Again from The Towering Inferno. Excited for these? Oh yes, uh, very excited. As sad as I am to be covering this category without Phil Collins, uh, I think it's going to be good. Yeah, and anyone who's not heard of Benji, you need to watch Benji. That's all I'm going to say. Absolutely. I mean, we'll go into, I'm sure we'll go into more detail about why uh, in next week's episode. But yes, Benji, cracker film. Go and see it. (laughs) All right, guys. uh, We'll be back with a new episode next week. See you then. Another bride, another tune, another sunny. Think what a year can bring